chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to read again the whole chapter. So please give your careful attention as once again we read God's Word. Ezra chapter 4 at verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabael and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. 
That is why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition has been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, Make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Raham and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. From the perspective of the first readers of the book of Ezra, a century of trouble had already passed. From the initial opposition Within a year of the Jews' return, we read of that in Ezra 4.4, to the opposition mentioned a decade and a half later when Darius came to the throne in Persia, we read of that in Ezra 4.5, to the opposition half a century later again in the time of Ahasuerus, Ezra 4.6, and finally to the continuing opposition that occupies the bulk of the rest of this chapter, Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, from approximately 464 B.C. onwards. Throughout all of that time, under different kings, different particulars, trouble dogged the Jews at every step, it would seem. And so last Lord's Day evening, as we sought to complete the exposition and exegesis of the text, we find from the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 through 5a, opposition in the time and days of Cyrus. From verse 5, second part, 5b, to verse 6, and in that very last verse, verse 24, we read of opposition in the days of Darius. 4.6, opposition in the days of Ahasuerus. 4.7 through verse 23, opposition in the days 
of Artaxerxes. And as we saw last Lord's evening, what emerges? There are differences of particular circumstance and time and space, but there's one consistent story, and it's a very sad tale. It's a sad tale of little faith on the part of the people of God in the face of such relentless opposition. Well, so much for the history, as we concluded last Lord's Day evening. What are we to learn from these things? Well, we learned some initial practical lessons, and we're going to review those just briefly this evening, and then conclude by adding some more practical lessons. But let's just summarize the text that we are thinking about from verse 6 through verse 24. Here we have outlined historical events real people, real places in real time, associated with the continued opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and of the city walls, which point to timeless lessons for God's people facing opposition. We're going to think about two things which are uh, focused upon the application of this text. First of all, we're going to think about those practical lessons we thought about last Lord's Day evening, so we're going to revisit those very briefly. And then secondly, we're going to conclude with some more practical lessons. So, if you like practical application, we're going to get that in plenty this evening. So first of all then, practical lessons revisited. What did we see last Lord's Day evening by way of summary review from this passage? First of all, the first readers of Ezra here, around 440 B.C., were given a lesson in church history in the form of a century of opposition. This wasn't a day or a week or a month or a year. This was an extended period of time, almost a hundred years. And so, what is the first particular lesson from that? It has never been easy for the people of God in a hostile world whether it's in the ancient days of Ezra or even in our own day. We need to learn that lesson as much as they did. We need to learn it particularly today in the face of those who suggest that following Jesus will bring a life of temporal, material prosperity and ease. It has never been easy for the people of God, and it will not be easy necessarily for us in our day. Remember what the Apostle Paul says, Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Second practical lesson revisited, relatively long periods of time may pass for God's people without the benefit of divine intervention in either supplying good leadership and or spiritual renewal and revival. Nevertheless, we are not to despise the day of small things. We are not to despise the time in which God has placed us if He has not chosen in His sovereign uh, providence to place us in a time where God has given great leadership to His church and has blessed their labors to great renewal and revival. It is God's sovereign prerogative to 
order those days and those who will live in those days. And if that is not us, then that is God's business and not ours. We are called to be faithful, not to be of little faith, because God is not working in the way that we think He should. Well, then we come back to our text again, verses 6 through 24, to our second main point this evening, more practical lessons. There's a third lesson here, and the lesson is this, a period of trials can make us as the people of God lose sight of God. A period of trial, particularly a long period of trial, can make us lose sight of God. At the time that Ezra was written, as Nehemiah would discover, the people in Jerusalem were in great trouble and shame. Nehemiah 1 verse 3. We'll come to the details of that, Lord willing, when we come to the book of Nehemiah. But uh, Nehemiah almost coincides with the time that Ezra was uh, written. And so his testimony, his personal testimony here, an evaluation of the people in Jerusalem at that time is relevant here. A time of them, uh, for them, great trouble and shame. It seems they had long since abandoned the project of rebuilding the city, and in the process, they had lost sight of the reason that they had been brought back to Jerusalem. They were to come and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Well, what had caused this? Well, the opposition, the trials, the difficulties had discouraged them, even to the point of discouraging them about God's promises. And so now, as they looked only to themselves, to their resources, those resources looked pitifully small and inadequate to accomplish such a great task. It was to such circumstance that, first of all, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, would be sent to Jerusalem by King Artaxerxes around 458 B.C. So, this is during the uh, last of the kings of Persia that we see in this chapter. We'll see more of that as we get into the book of um, Ezra, but if you think Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes. It's during Artaxerxes' reign that Ezra is sent to Jerusalem. And why is he sent? To ensure that worship in the temple, it had been rebuilt by the time Ezra comes, but that it would be offering worship according to God's command, according to, we would say, the divine standard. We might wonder why a pagan king like Artaxerxes was so concerned about that. Um, it wasn't that he was necessarily a believer, far from it. But the Persian king was concerned about this as part of his uh, policy, you remember, that he had continued from Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus before him about multi-faith um, policies throughout the empire, that if there was going to be this religion, it had to be according to the statute of the God of those people. And so he sends Ezra to ensure that that is the case. 
And so when we come to Ezra chapter 7, a little preview of that this evening, we'll see that the Israelites were in great need of such instruction and help from Ezra. When he arrives, 60 years will have passed since the first Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles were celebrated, you remember, within a month of the return of the exiles. And now, after that great rejoicing, now some 60 years later, spiritually, they were in very poor state and condition, as Nehemiah said, in great trouble and shame. Now, it's also significant to note in this uh, lesson that even when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, renewal did not come immediately. Uh, Ezra's uh, faithful ministry, his influence, did not cause revival straight away in the hearts and minds of the people. Not until the seventh month of 444 B.C. did anything even remotely resembling renewal and revival would appear amongst the Israelites. Uh, Of course, we are somewhat familiar with God working in these remarkable ways throughout church history when there is that sovereign outpouring of the Spirit of God which brings repentance, brings what we might call that energetic faith on a large scale um, throughout often the church of the Lord Jesus. Again, we see a great example of that in Nehemiah chapter 8. But for this evening, it's significant to note that that didn't occur straight away, just as soon as Ezra began his ministry. And so here is the end of Ezra 4 draws to a close uh, in verse 23, uh, remembering that verse 24 chronologically is out of sequence. This is organized according to uh, subject of, of reigns. Um, in terms of uh, Artaxerxes' reign at the end of verse 23. Um, Jerusalem, as it were, the Israelites cowering in fear from the great opposition, threats of the people of the land, uh, even as we had seen from the beginning of the chapter. Um, Almost for a hundred years, this had been the prevailing circumstance. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, The exiles were in spiritual bankruptcy, having the form but not the power of true faith. They had lost sight of God, as the absence of any reference to prayer makes all too clear. End quote. Seems they had stopped even calling upon God. Um, they looked to themselves. They were woefully inadequate. And so... They were left in this malaise of spiritual bankruptcy. Now, we will see later again the exact conditions that Ezra found when he arrived in Jerusalem, as well as the conditions that continue to exist when Nehemiah is sent a little later to the city of Jerusalem. But for this evening, it's enough to note that despite Ezra's considerable labors and input, Uh, The worship in the temple during the first half of the 5th century B.C. was not what it ought to have been. It was not faithful. Um, It was not from the heart. It was not uh, worship, as we would say, according to spirit and truth. 
Um, the people's knowledge of God's Word remains pitifully small, needing ongoing expert instruction by Ezra. It remained a time of spiritual poverty, shallowness, we would say, uh, immaturity, uh, all really reflecting that God's people had lost sight of much of God's glory. Fourth lesson, trials can sometimes be the result of sin. We mentioned that somewhat briefly last Lord's Day evening. I want to spend just a little more time on it this evening. Trials can sometimes be the result of sin. Now, it is not insignificant that upon hearing of the state of the city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah makes confession of not only his own sin, but also those of his fellow Jews, Nehemiah 1, verses 6 through 7. That is at least suggestive that some of this trial that was coming upon them of this uh, century of opposition um, was due to the chastisement of the Lord for their lack of faithful continuing in the work. Now, before we say any more about that, we want to make very clear that not every trial in the life of every Christian is the result of sin. So, just in case we're in evening worship and we're all a little sleepy, I'll say that again, just so we're clear. Not every trial in the life of every Christian is the result of sin. Where do we go to show that? Well, Job, of course, is an obvious example, isn't it? What does the Scripture say about Job? He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, Job 1.1, and yet he endured great trials. New Testament example, what about the man born blind, John chapter 9? Of course, the disciples had this exact opinion, didn't they? Well, then, if he's, he's in this situation, somebody sinned here. That's why he's enduring this physical trial. So, was it him or was it his parents? It was somebody. That's how they saw it, didn't they? And what did Jesus say to such an inadequate, uh, at best naive, consideration of that circumstance? John 9 verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we want to say, by way of application here, it is totally inappropriate pastorally to suggest that every onset of trouble, every trial in the life of every Christian is the result of sin and therefore must be an example of the Lord's chastisement. Clearly, that is not the case. Um, even Job's friends often said the same thing, didn't they? They said, just, just admit it, Job, and it might end. But whilst you maintain your um, righteousness here, then it's just going to continue until you're willing to admit uh, your sin. 
Having said all of that, having said that it's not necessarily the case, yet the Bible does teach, and that is the, the point here, I think, in the passage that we have before us, the Bible does teach that sometimes trial is the result of fatherly chastisement from our Heavenly Father, indeed for sin, for wrongdoing on our part. Um, as we will come to it in the Lord's uh, providence, uh, that is the great uh, burden of much of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Hebrews 12 verses 5 through 11 again repeats the great claim, the great um, uh, affirmation that it is the Lord's discipline. It is the Lord's discipline. It is the Lord's discipline. And so sometimes it can be the case. You see how we have to navigate through this. It isn't always the case, but that doesn't mean it's never the case. And so here with uh, the Israelites in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is most likely and at least it has to be considered that it is the case. Now, what's the great challenge to the believer who is under the fatherly discipline and chastisement of the Lord for sin? Well, as the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 12, uh, makes very clear pastorally, and of course, the author had a great pastoral heart for those to whom he wrote, the problem with discipline is that it can lead to, to use the author of Hebrews' word, to weariness, Hebrews 12, verse 5, and even to embitterment, Hebrews 12, verse 15. He says it can cause the hands to droop the knees to grow weak and feeble, Hebrews 12, 12. These circumstances seem to be what had occurred at least in part following Ezra's visit to Jerusalem. The people, their hands had drooped, the knees had grown weak and feeble. Um, despite the Lord's purpose in His trial and in His chastisement, um, it wasn't at least at this point um, accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. They um, wearied under it. How is it that we can look at trials any differently and come to any different conclusion? even if they are necessary because of our wrongdoing? How is it that we can receive that fatherly chastisement and discipline with joy and it accomplish the good purpose in us to turn us again from ourself and our poverty and to cast ourselves upon the Lord's great grace and mercy? Well, of course, it's only as we have a proper gospel perspective, we would say, even of our Father's chastisement. What does the author say in the beginning of Hebrews 12 before he launches into this whole discussion about discipline of the Father, of those who err? Hebrews 12, 2, he says, we are to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. There is no doubt, again, if you were to take a survey throughout uh, the history of the church, that 
the response to painful and difficult trials, even where God sees them as necessary to chastise us, initially at least, result in some form of spiritual depression. That's why the writer of the Hebrews talks about all of this uh, language of hands drooping down and uh, growing weak of the knees and feeble. Um, that has been the experience of many in such circumstances. Now, trials in and of themselves, without any other perspective into which to set them, will and do cast people down. There's no doubt about it. I don't think anybody says, hoorah, I'm going to have a trial, right? Uh, we're not looking for that. Indeed, I think there would be something very wrong if, if somebody did. They don't have a right perspective if they're just looking for pain and trouble in and of itself. But here, trials may and often do cast down if they're just looked at by themselves without faith in Christ, the great Savior, because without that, they cannot help us to see that trials, as the author to the Hebrews puts it, are evidence that we are the adopted children of God. Remember how the author to the Hebrews puts it? God has seen it necessary to bring this, this trial to discipline us. But insofar that He has, it is not evidence, He says, that you are illegitimate children, but rather the opposite, that you are true children of God, because that's what a true heavenly Father does. It's an evidence of His love and His care. But we have to have that perspective. Otherwise, trials merely condemn us, cast us down, bring us to misery and despair. One commentator puts it like this, referring to trials. He says, quote, They lack that quality that drives us to see our need and cry to God for help. In and of themselves, they discourage without showing the way out of despair. He goes on to conclude, this is why the author of Hebrews exhorts weary Christians bowed down under the burden of trials to run with endurance, the race looking to Jesus. That's what the people of God in Ezra's time, in Nehemiah's time needed to do. And brethren, that's what we need to do in our day and generation. God may see fit to bring such things into our lives because of our folly. And because of our disobedience and because of our sin. But what's the answer to it? Our mourning and our groaning? Why is this happening to me? No, it is to run with endurance the race, even under such trial, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Knowing that these things, if that is the case with this particular trial for this particular Christian, it is an evidence that we are adopted children. It's a demonstration of the love of God to us and not the opposite. Fifth and last lesson from this passage. Spiritual depression is the result of what we might say is theological ineptitude. Those are long words. Let's try and unpack them a little bit. 
We all know what spiritual depression is. It's being down and cast down and not knowing the way out of um, the circumstance of trials and difficulties. Um, but why are we looking at them like that? Well, it's because we do not have a properly informed evaluation of them biblically, theologically, according to the truth of the Scriptures. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, We fail to consider the implications of what Christ has done for us and what He now calls us to do. And then he goes on to quote Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4, where the writer to the Hebrews says, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What is the author to the Hebrews as he's diagnosing the spiritual condition of the original hearers of his first day? He says, well, you're in this circumstance because you have forgotten some very important and fundamental things. You've forgotten the implications that are a consequence of who you are, a child of God, Hebrews 12, verse 5. What does that tell us? It tells us something very practical, brothers and sisters, and it is this, that we may know the truth, but fail to understand how to apply it, being, as the author to the Hebrews says, unskilled in the word of righteousness, Hebrews 5.13. We may know that word of righteousness, but unskilled in knowing how to apply it to our circumstance, to our despondency, to our de spiritual depression in the midst of persecution, opposition, trial. This, of course, underlines the great importance of Ezra's calling as a preacher and teacher and being sent to people in such a condition. From that perspective, then, trials are God's school, as we might call them. Puritans were um, very fond of uh, speaking of trials in the life of believers in those kinds of terms. They are the school of Christ in which we are trained in the ways of righteousness. Um, don't know if you've ever thought about trials or when you last thought about trials in those ways, um, that they're designed to teach us things. Um, they are educational. Ever thought of that in the curriculum for the Christian? Trials to teach us. And so, as we draw to a close this evening, the point that much of the whole books of Ezra and Nehemiah it pains to stress uh, is this. Um, learn from your trials. Whatever may be the particulars of them, whatever may be the reason for them, and they're not the same, they're not the same for each Christian at the same time and all of those things, but they are those things from which we are to learn. Um, what are we to learn from them? Well, we, learn to, we are to learn to see them as instruments that call us back to God. Remember that, for, that third lesson, first lesson for tonight, that trials don't cause us to lose sight of God, but rather they're designed to do the very opposite, to draw us to greater dependence upon 
the Lord. Therefore, we're to learn to see them as God's prompts to keep us watchful, alert, awake in the great spiritual battle. When did, the last, when did I last think of trials in that way? Designed to keep us watchful and alert. Thirdly, we're to learn to view them as part of the promise of the Lord insofar as they wean us away from this world ultimately. We're to think of them in that way. Uh, we're to think of the great promise of the Lord is this isn't all that there is. There's something far greater, as we thought last week, a day coming. We thought of the day coming last Lord's Day evening, contrast to ordinary days, days of small things. This evening, we think of that great day of the Lord when Christ returns, in contrast to days of difficulty and trial and trouble. Those days aren't forever. The great promise of God that His day is coming when we shall be delivered from all of these things is to draw us away from the things of this world and to make us long greater for the world to come. So, what are we to do with these trials? We are to ponder them, not simply to wish they would go as quickly as possible. As our forefathers would say, we are to interrogate them, sit down and think in the light of God's Word to be theologically, properly trained by the Word of God to say, now, what is God's purpose here in this? And we may not be infallible interpreters of the Lord's providence, but we can certainly be guided by the principles of God's Word. What does Peter say about trials? Well, first of all, he says they are designed by God and sent to you for a purpose. So, they're not um, uh, arbitrary. We're not at the hands of some uh, fickle fate. When trial comes to the believer, it is from the hands of a loving Heavenly Father for a particular purpose, which He may or may not disclose to us at the beginning, in the middle, at the end. But we have great reason and great comfort to conclude there is purpose to it. And we can, if we can put no more detail on it, we can certainly say, to the glory of God and for my everlasting good. If I can't say anything else in how that is coming about, I can say that. And brothers and sisters, so can you. Every trial in the believer is designed for the glory of God and for my everlasting goods. So ponder them, interrogate them, and ultimately we are to submit to them as they are sent from the hand of God. I'm not to rail. I'm not to, why me? This is not right. I deserve better than this, God. Why are you doing this to me? We are to submit to them as from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father to the glory of God and for our everlasting good. Remember what I said was the big picture of all these sub-lessons. Um, we are to learn the reality. This is the Christian life in this fallen world. But as we are to endure opposition, as we are to endure trial, as we are to endure trial as fatherly chastisement, as we are to endure trial which is just the bitter opposition of ungodly 
um, individuals and this culture of this world against God, His Christ, His gospel, and His church. Whatever the particulars may be, what are we to do? We look to Jesus, the author to the Hebrews says, always. Not sometimes, not just perhaps when I remember to, but actually I'm a long way down in my trial before that comes to me. And at the end of my tether, I remember to look to Jesus. He says, always looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, His great trial. Not a trial that came because He had to be chastised. He was the perfectly obedient Son. But nevertheless, He had to pass through this trial of suffering, despising the shame, and the one who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Learn to ponder trials, interrogate them, submit to them, but as we do, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and in so doing then, we learn to give God all the glory. May God so help each one of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that You would help us to learn these very practical lessons. Yet, Lord, they are difficult lessons. They are lessons that we find ourselves having to learn again and again and again in the Christian life. We sometimes feel that we've made progress but as we do so, we start to take glory to ourselves again, and we have to relearn them, and you send perhaps more trial so that we may relearn it more thoroughly. Lord, we pray that you would help us and that we would indeed learn to ponder trials, interrogate them, submit to them, and that you would grant us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ that you would help us to be properly, uh, properly theologically, not inept, but have the great aptitude of having been taught by the Word of God, to see these things rightly and appropriately. Help us to bring glory to you, we pray, even in our day and generation. Not called to rebuild a physical temple or called to rebuild a physical city in Palestine, but rather, O oh Lord, to build the kingdom of God, that kingdom which is an everlasting kingdom, even as you enable us by your grace. Grant, O oh Lord, that our hands would not hang down, our knees not grow weak. Grant us always to look to Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith. Here is then we pray in Christ's name. Amen.